This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Since the 1970s, the U.S. economy has been sending more and more of its rewards to fewer and fewer people. Once seen as an example of middle-class opportunity, it has become the most unequal of developed nations, a land where corporate leaders have earned hundreds of times the pay of average workers. Drawing on the best and latest research for his latest book, Inequality Matters, The Growing Economic Divide in America and Its Poisonous Consequences, co-editor and co-author Jim Lardner explores the story of That the Numbers Tell about how America has changed. Lardner is the founder of Inequality.org and has written for a host of magazines including The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Nation, and U.S. News and World Report. He is also the author of Fast Forward. Jim Lardner, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. Uh, how are you doing today? Good. Good. Now, uh, what prompted you to put this book together? Was there a, a point in time where you said, uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, or, or was this a, an ongoing process? It was a collective thing as well as being an ongoing thing. The, uh, the book is a collection of connected essays by 25 writers who share with me the feeling that we are talking about an unacknowledged national tragedy, uh, unacknowledged maybe because it didn't happen on a day you can pinpoint and there wasn't any live video, um, but something that has changed American life and American aspirations profoundly. And here we are, 30 years, nearly 30 years into this trend of growing economic inequality, and it seemed like time to take stock, see how it had changed us, what the effects were. Well, why, why do you think it goes unrecognized or went unrecognized? Did it just sneak up on us? Was it the, uh, the old uh, frogs in boiling water scenario? Yeah, I do think so. Yeah. Um, the you you have recessions and and uh, expansions and all kinds of cycles in the American economy and it's it's uh, when something happens by degrees it over a long period of time it is it is difficult to be fully conscious of its importance especially um, since. Uh, you know, it is something. It's 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 what is an open secret. It's something we do know about, and yet we don't. We don't look at all the consequences. We don't, for example, maybe think about the Abramoff scandal going on in Washington right now uh, as a result of or a symptom of growing economic inequality in America. We think of it rather as just being sort of timeless political corruption. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the years from the Watergate scandal to now, um, the rules about about politics and about lobbying and uh, so forth aren't looser now than they were then. On the contrary, after Watergate, some important rules were put in place, and there have been a succession of efforts to deal with corruption, political corruption involving Congress. And the reason that we suddenly find uh, this massive uh, kind of uh, routine uh, trading of huge campaign contributions and sometimes bribes for for favors for earmarked favors in legislation is that over this period of time America has become so much more unequal and there is 
uh, so much more incentive for for those both individuals and corporations who are kind of on the on the top of the heap to use their money as power to gain what they want from the system. We have a political system that is much more tightly controlled by large corporations and and the interests of big money today than it was in the days of Watergate. I want to make an observation and, and uh, tell me what you th- what you think, and that is that, uh, and it goes along with what you're saying that corporations now realize that the investment, the return on their dollar, uh, is so high, is so amazingly high in terms of their normal investments that it is that is an extra incentive for them to throw money at the Abramhoffs of the world, um, where it I don't think business has really understood. How, what the consequences, at least in the 60s and 70s, it didn't seem like you saw this disparity. These guys are getting tax breaks that, that pay off in the billions of dollars now. Well, you know, there's this thing called pork, right? Yeah, well, it's um, always been around. Pork used to, be, used to be spread around. The little companies would get it. Uh, the companies that, that had uh, friends who were Democrats or, or Republicans, they, everybody would get a share. Um, they, the American Political Science Association has done a study uh, which is reflected in our book, uh, in the piece by Charles Lewis on political influence, and also in the piece by David K. Johnston on the on tax rules. Um, and what they see is that much more now pork is used by our ruling uh, party and uh, by congressional leaders to reward the biggest financial backers yeah. of of the politicians. Uh, it's much more. It's a much more efficient system. That's one point I'd like to make. And another point I heard made re- recently by Bob Reich uh, in a speech uh, was very interesting. Uh, sometimes I find myself mystified by why certain big mega mergers occur in in corporate America. Doesn't seem clear that that uh, economically there's any reason for for one company to merge with another. And um, but. But if you look at it at the question of political influence, uh, political influence definitely the economies of scale there are, are terrific, you know. And yeah. Reich suggested in his speech that that some of the huge companies have become as huge as they are, not for economic reasons, but for political reasons, because that allows them to to uh, to manipulate the political system to their advantage and to create some kind of quasi monopoly. Now, now it used to be, and correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me I remember pork being more public works projects. You know, pork meant that you were going to get that bridge or those or some kind of federal or state government infrastructure uh, being built in a, in somebody's congressional district. Now it means that when Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House, all of the aerospace industries move their headquarters into into Georgia. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there is there one statistic that just jumps out at you uh, that? Uh, really shows the disparity, the shift uh, since the 1970s? Um, well, on the political influence score, i tell you one, one uh, statistic that just uh, uh, astounded me. Uh-huh. Um, 401 members of the House of Representatives ran for re-election in 2004. Of those 401, how many actually w- were defeated? Five, yeah. two of them by the Tom Delay's redistricting scam in Texas. So you know, only three examples 
would would suggest a vibrant democracy where where you know the the outs have a chance against the ins. So it's really ninety nine percent. That's ninety nine percent. And uh, here's another one: twenty um, percent of the U.S. population um, owns eighty. Four percent of the wealth, the private wealth. The other eighty percent has only fifteen percent of the private wealth, or fifteen point six percent. And either way, wealth or income. Uh, I mean, these numbers have to be said go up and down depending on the stock market. Uh, but either way, wealth or income. Most economists agree that America is more unequal than at any time since the nineteen thirties, and more unequal than any of the other nations of the developed world. And mobility, opportunity, which we have always prided ourselves on, along with democracy, perhaps, uh, you know, it's the second defining characteristic of, of America that has kind of held constant from 1776 to now, um, is actually, most economists now agree, lower. That is, the, the, the ability to move from, from the bottom to the top or from the middle to the top or from the bottom to the middle, is lower in America than it is in a number of European countries. The American dream is less alive in America than in some other nations, Germany or Sweden, for example. Uh, I think these these facts are not only um, uh, deeply worrisome, but also show how growing inequality goes against the values of of pretty much all Americans. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not some kind of you know, red or blue state uh, issue. Well, you would think that, that lower income people would then be angry about this and go to the polls, but it seems to work the opposite way, at least to me, that, that, it's the, that you can always rely on uh, upper income people uh, showing up to vote and lower income, uh, it's hard to organize them to vote. Is there a reason you see behind this? You, you hear a lot about voter apathy and low voter turnout in the United States. The truth is that high-income Americans vote at the same rate as the high-income citizens of any other country. It's, uh, the, the real difference, as you said, is, is a class-skewed difference. It's what happens to, with the voter turnout among Americans whose, are, whose family incomes are 40,000, 30,000 or less. There's, there's a big fall-off. And we are the only country in which elected officials calculate their their campaigns uh, according to who's going to come out and who's not going to come out. And, and, and there's a kind of effective immunity given to national elected officials now for for adopting positions that that, that serve only a tiny percentage of the population because they know that that lower and even middle income Americans are not going to vote in nearly as heavy numbers. Now, why? Um, you can call it apathy if you like, but uh, I would say, uh, suggest that, that a lot of it is quite a quite reasonable um, uh, calculation that um, they know they're not being represented by the political system, that, they, that political representation has been priced out of reach. The key transaction, anyhow, is not the vote, but the campaign contribution. Yeah. Yeah, what you're talking about is the reason these candidates adopt these positions is it's where the money is. And everyone knows, and and if you're involved in political campaigns, you were going to run for Congress or whatever you wanted to run for. My first question to you as a consultant would be, how much money do you have? Not what you stand for or anything else. How much money do you have? 
And the, 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 the people are now saying that Hillary Clinton has the Democratic nomination in 2008, you know, uh, uh, two years and change away, uh, possibly locked up because of how much campaign money she has as opposed to any other Democratic contender. That's right. We haven't, not a debate, not a forum, nothing has happened. No, we don't even know her positions on probably 80% of the significant issues that we're going to be facing, and yet people are talking like she's already won it. This is insane. It is absolutely insane. Um, well, speaking of Hillary Clinton, yes. Um, well, the U.S. spends more money on its health care system uh, than than just about any other country in the world. But 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 uh, our performance is is very low. I think it's it's thirty seventh in the world. Why why is this going on? Why are we spending a lot on on health care as far as you know just basic inequality goes and and getting nothing in return? The lower classes or or any working family. There are two answers to that question, I think. One is very clear, and the other is more, a little more murky, but, but uh, I think uh, pretty compelling. Um, number one, uh, health care is one of a number of areas of life where large numbers of people, uh, Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't really matter, believe there should be a threshold of some kind of rough equality. Education is another. But what we're seeing is that when you have extreme economic inequality, extreme uh, inequality of wealth and income, there's no practical way to preserve these sanctuaries of rough equality. So in our education system and in our health care system, we devote immense resources to the needs of a well-heeled few, while others are required to pay skyrocketing costs increasingly out of their own pockets. And if you look at the rate of uninsurance, I mean, there are 45 million Americans who, who lack health insurance. You, you see that, that there's a uh, close correspondence uh, with, with income, uh, also with race. Um, the uh, uh, Hispanics and, and African Americans far less likely to have health insurance than others. So many people with acute needs are, are not getting medical attention, do not have regular medical care. Uh, and that's one answer to your question, I think. Um, the other answer may have something to do with stress, because when some people make fabulous sums of money, when you have a kind of mass upper class as we do in America today, um, it drives the costs of certain critical things like housing and higher education and health care up for everybody. and. Everybody is forced into a kind of competition. Bob Frank writes about this. The economist Bob Frank writes about this in, uh, in an essay in our book uh, about spending cascades. People are forced to spend more than they want on housing, more than they want on higher education. And, and as a result, you middle-income Americans, you know, they're not doing – they're sort of holding their own if you just look at income, where they're not holding their own – is in working hours and debt, all the, the tricks that we resort to to try to kind of keep up. Um, so you're left with less time for family, less time for community, less time um, uh, away from work, more time commuting. All these things make for a more stressful life and may well explain why um, part, maybe part of the explanation for why, even though, as you said, we spend far and away the most per capita on health care. In fact, Americans spend about half the money spent on this planet of six billion people 
on health care. Uh, nevertheless, we're not even in the top 20 when it comes to life expectancy. Um, that could be one of the reasons, this uh, issue of stress. I do think that the dollars only go so far in showing you the, the, the impact of growing inequality. Let, let me uh, remind our listeners that we're speaking with Jim Lartner, and this book uh, we're talking about is Inequality Matters, The Growing Economic Divide in America and Its Poisonous Consequences. We've touched on health care, um, and on the cover of your book, you have some iconic uh, photographs or pictures of uh, obviously a, a campaign button, uh, a real estate uh, sign, a stethoscope, a car, and and a graduation cap. That's a Hummer. That's not a car. Yeah, it's a car. It's a, yeah, it's a big Hummer. <laughs> yeah. So these are the areas I think that you're 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 well. We spoke of, of health care, uh, obviously college and uh, the ability, to, the access to educational opportunity is another consequence of this growing inequality, isn't it? Yes, um, we have a chapter by Rick Kallenberg of the Century Foundation on primary school education in America, and he makes a point that you really do not hear enough in the whole debate about education policy. There is a great deal of discussion about testing and standards. There's a certain amount of discussion about the inequality of resources that go to schools in poor areas and wealthy areas in America, and that is a huge issue. Um, but you, what you don't hear much about is the fact that 50 years after Brown versus Board of Education, we have increasing segregation mm-hmm. along economic lines. In other words, if you're a poor child in America, you are increasingly likely to go to a school filled with other poor children. And most of the research that was done in the wake of, uh, of desegregation 50 and 40 and 30 years ago has, has shown that economic integration of the schools is much more key, actually, than racial integration to, to improvements in achievement. So it's not impossible to have a school full of, of poor kids or poor kids of color and have a successful school. We, we read inspiring magazine articles about such schools all the time, but, but it's, it's, the odds are way against it. And so that's one way in which growing economic inequality has, has uh, impaired our education system. Uh, another way... Forty years ago, um, Lyndon Johnson, as president, uh, signed the Higher Education Act, which was followed by other measures and grants and loans and a whole system that was explicitly designed to reduce the class divide in higher education to make college available to all, regardless of, of uh, economic class and, and resources. And it actually worked for a while. Uh, the class divide in higher education was reduced for a decade or two, but then it started rising again. Why? started rising because, in the first place, tuitions really shot up. Tuitions ratcheted up as both the sort of privileged institutions and the privileged families of America kind of uh, uh, made, uh, you might say, deluxe higher education more and more expensive. Mm-hmm. And, and then the funding for people based on need really just never kept up. Uh, you have now increasingly financial aid, both at the state level and at the discretionary level that's you know, given out by private institutions. Um, it goes increasingly to people who may or may not need it. To, uh, colleges use it to compete for the same pool of top applicants. Mm-hmm. And um, the result is that many Americans, academically qualified young Americans, uh, do not go to college 
or go to a community college or a different college from where they would like to go because they can't afford what they would or think they're they're scared off by sticker shock. Um, that's in addition to all those who who are given huge burdens of debt, college loans, or 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 who in who work long hours while going to college, which makes it very hard to compete with the other kids who have uh, a, a kind of free ride. Um, so we we think of education, we preach education as the way up the economic ladder in America. Meanwhile, we design our education system increasingly to keep some people up and other people down. And, and let's be clear about this. Um, we're not just, we don't want to sound like uh, uh, the, the universities that we go to can have a tremendous impact on our ability uh, uh, to earn a living in the workplace. It, it, the difference between going to Glendale Junior College or um, or some other state college as opposed to going to a Stanford or a USC or some other school like that can have a, a dramatic impact on your ability to make money. Is, am I- and and, and the, that's true, and, and it's also true that the difference between having a four-year college degree and not having a four-year college degree has become crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very high percentage of people who go to community colleges ultimately don't make it through to getting a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where part of this uh, kind of uh, uh, divide, chasm, occurs. Uh, it has to be said, though, that um, um, the economic value of, of a higher education, of a four-year degree over, the, over not having it, is, uh, it, it's, it went way up over the last couple of decades, but now college graduates are also facing many of the same kind of competitive pressures and the sort of downward pressure on, on incomes that other Americans are facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Lardner, what, what can we do to fix the problem? I mean, we've, we've listed all sorts of, uh, of uh, negatives. Uh, it, give us a positive. Well, is there a bottom to this? Yeah. I mean, is there a point at which we've stretched the, uh, you know, the divide so greatly that, that we c- will bounce back somehow? Is there a History suggests that there surely is, and that this is a kind of counter uh, current in in a uh, a river that is moving in the other direction. Mm-hmm. The the countries that have kind of come on the scene and have uh, astonished the world with their economic uh, dynam- dynamism have been countries that, in the context of the world at that time, were were middle-class countries, countries that were more egalitarian. Uh, that was true of, of, of Holland in the, uh, I think, in the 17th century, and, and sort of England in the uh, 19th century, and, uh, and spectacularly true of, of the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and so that, that is one source of hope, I mean, for the world as a whole. And I think that... Um, Simply raising consciousness is part of the key here. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note that um, this whole trend of rising economic inequality has come about in a, in a, largely in a 25-year period when our national politics have been dominated by uh, extreme right-wing uh, economic philosophy of deregulation and privatization and uh, a, a tax shift. Um, where the tax burden has moved heavily away from high-income Americans and corporations towards middle-income Americans. Social Security tax is the one tax that's never been cut. Um, it's a, and, and this 
you might say the whole Reagan Bush economic philosophy um, has had no clearer legacy than this rising economic inequality. And while the laissez-faire economists uh, often will say that inequality doesn't matter um, and that only a, only a naive person or an economic illiterate would be concerned about it, uh, they don't advertise the fact that there's been this huge increase in economic inequality over the last 25 years. Uh, initially, it was denied that it was happening at all. Then there was this uh, 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 consoling thesis put out that, that well, okay, there was extreme inequality, but but one year's winners would be completely different from the next year's winners. That America was like some kind of madcap car race where the people, you know, the people in the lead one time, one minute were were in the tail end of the race. The next minute, there was this tremendous economic mobility. Well, that theory has now been dispatched by by findings which most Americans can sense in their bones anyway. That that we're having a kind of hardening of class lines, less movement up the ladder, not more. Um, so so we're sort of moving in the direction of, of waking up to this, uh, uh, you know, like waking up after a nightmare. A number of newspapers um, and magazines have run really good, very uh, un, unmeasured, <laughs> um, <laughs> strong articles, uh, cover stories, features, series on the subject of, of class and inequality, uh, Time Magazine, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal pieces on mobility, the Washington Post this Sunday on the on, uh, devoted its entire editorial page to inequality mm-hmm. and why it is a problem, contrary to what so many have been saying for so long. Uh, so um, I, you know, I think there's there's a um, there's a waking up going on, which uh, is part of what we put this book together to inspire. Right. Let me remind our listeners: we're speaking with Jim Lardner, and we're speaking of the book Inequality Matters. How does this translate into sort of political action? Anytime a anytime a politician and anyone running for office mentions uh, these kinds of issues, the uh, inevitably the right wingers say this is about about income redistribution, which is which is a code word for socialism or worse. Um, th- this seems to be the mantra that they repeat over and over, that we don't want the federal government redistributing wealth in this country. Uh, where, do, you, do you see a, a growing political um, current for, for, for putting this into action, putting some policies in place? Well, it's remarkable that um, the right wing has gotten away as long as it has gotten away with uh, um, the, the sort of beating the dead horse of communism. Uh, right. Uh, I think that it's uh, only natural that that they could keep it up for a while after there was no communism left in the world. But now that it's uh, getting on fifteen years or so uh, at least, um, I think that argument is going to kind of wither and die because partly what we're really talking about is is how different market economies function. Not because there's a lot more inequality in America than there is in other nations that have market economies and democracy and a lot of the same features we do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what was your question? Well, I just want to <laughs> do you see a do you see a rising sort of tide of of political support? And this is the problem. It comes back. It comes a lot of this comes back to uh, campaign finance reform because as long as the people who are being run for public office, who are beholden to the people who get these tax breaks, who end up being a part of this inequality, 
it's going to be difficult to find the political wherewithal for them, t- for these, for politicians to put in policies that will redistribute the wealth. I mean, let's be honest. This is what we're talking about. No, I, I would, I would sort of slightly quarrel with that. Redistribute the wealth. That's what we're talking about. Um, formulation. Um, yeah, okay. and, and I have two answers to your question. First of all, um, a lot of it is not about redistributing. It's about distributing. Yeah. Um, and I mean to say, uh, if you look at American public opinion, uh, we do not, by and large, have a very high opinion of corporate CEOs. And we certainly do not have a high opinion of, of the, uh, uh, the heads of companies like Enron and WorldCom and uh, Tyco and all the other ones that have been in the news in the last few years for, for various kinds of scams, uh, often involving manipulating the stock price up to benefit a handful of insiders at everybody else's expense, in, including investors and employees and communities and what have you. Yeah. Um, and so first we need to recognize that much of the uh, that the kind of spectacular uh, booty that that is available to a tiny handful of Americans um, is not gained uh, altogether by honest means. Um, it's gained by some kind of manipulation, and and we know from history and really from our own experience that great concentrations of wealth come about when when people rig the system, when they use uh, when the wealthy use money as power mm-hmm. um, in order to preserve their wealth from year to year and generation to generation. And, you know, this doesn't just happen in, in, in monarchies and feudal principalities and tin horn dictatorships. It can happen in a, in a rich democracy, too. And, and we see it all over the place. Um, uh, so that's one point I want to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if you passed a, a, a law that said that uh, uh, corporate directors whose the compensation committees could not include anybody appointed by the, the chief executive officer of the corporation or anyone who depended on the chief executive officer of the corporation, the result would be lower compensation mm-hmm. uh, for corporate chief executive officers, but you wouldn't have done any redistribution. So that's one answer I have, and I think that's just one of many examples of where if you mm-hmm. look at the system and make a, make a more honest, open system, more competitive, mm-hmm. more free market, if you will, um, you may get more equality as well. And my second answer is um, to do with with um, the with public opinion. Uh, there have been a number of measures on uh, that have shown in the last couple of years that there's a great deal of support for improving the pay of the working poor. Uh, living wage measures have passed in state after state, and there's also quite a remarkable amount of support for higher tax rates on on millionaires and and uh, the spectacular winners in our society, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, California yes. and uh, itself had a what? What didn't didn't California? Yes, pass we passed something? a one percent uh, uh, additional one percent uh, tax um, on the wealthiest, and that did pass. Yeah, so, and, yeah you know yeah. these the, the these kinds of proposals are unfortunately rarely. Uh, yeah. up up on the table um, for people to vote on. Yeah. Part of the problem with our political system now is that things like bankruptcy reform, which you know are just a bill written by the credit card industry, yeah. um, uh, are on the agenda, and uh, the kinds of things we're talking about aren't on the agenda. Right. But right. Well, I, Jim uh, Lardner, we have run out of time, literally, um, so we're going to have to wrap this up, but I want to once again remind our listeners that we've um, been speaking of Inequality Matters, the growing economic divide in America, 
and its poisonous consequences. We've been speaking with the co-author, Jim Lartner, about that issue. Thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.